Well, good morning. If you want to turn your Bibles to the book of Ruth today, we're going to be starting a new series this morning. But before we jump to the text, I'd like us to just take some time to, to pray together and give God praise. Uh, the kids are welcome to go to the back. we got some special events with them, a special activity today. Sitting back with, looks like Miss Haley, is that right today, Miss Cindy? Leslie, okay. A couple things we want to be praying for. Uh, first of all, we want to give God praise for last night. It was welcome uh, moisture as it rained, and so let's, let's just give him thanks for that. I know many of you have been praying for that. Many in the community have been praying for rain. Um, also, uh, a praise just for the, this amazing week. I know there's a lot of tired helpers, but uh, God is so good, and what it was accomplished uh, through Vacation Bible School, the scripture that's hidden in hearts, uh, children that, that came to know the Lord and, and trusted Jesus for the first time, perhaps. Um, we, we need to give God praise for his work in, in them and, and through us. And so thank you for, for being his vessel. We also want to be praying for, for uh, Charles Holt as he uh, is on his way to Africa and Uganda. Uh, Karen's with us this morning, um, was not able to get her passport. And so we're going to be praying that, that God would accomplish some great things both here and there. And so let's be praying for their team as they continue to serve and, um, and, and what God would, would uh, be accomplishing during his time. So join me in prayer as we, as we go to his throne. Father, we, we come before you. We, we're so thankful for the work that you do in our lives. Um, you are a good God, and uh, you accomplish so many mighty things. And as we consider your providence, as we consider your good hand and, and the way that you are moving in our lives, we, we give you praise for the rain. Uh, we know that all good things come from you. We know that you bring rain on the, the righteous and the wicked, and um, we're grateful for your provision for mankind and how you have continually provided for us. We praise you for this last week of Vacation Bible School. We pray that the, the fruit of that would be something that would last uh, for a lifetime in these children's lives, that the songs that they learned, that more importantly, the scripture that they hid in their hearts, the lessons they learned about Jesus Christ and your kingdom would be something that would... Um, draw them ever closer to you. We also want to pray for the team in Uganda. Um, we, we praise you for this opportunity, but Lord, we, we pray that you would give them discernment, that you would give them discretion, that you would help them to um, know what uh, you would have them doing each day. And whether it's the, the medical end of things or, or sharing the gospel with somebody that doesn't know Jesus Christ, I pray that you would open those doors and accomplish uh, mighty things for your kingdom there. As we come to you and and we, we turn to your word in the book of Ruth. I, I pray that you would open our eyes to the truths that are here. Uh, oftentimes we see these small books of the Bible, Lord, and we, we kind of pass over them or we've read them before and we, we don't stop to really take a look at what you're saying here. I, I pray that that wouldn't be so with this book. I, I pray that you would show us the richness that is here and I pray that, that we would understand your providence in a new way as we explore it in this wonderful story of a woman who is in need and and we see how you provided for her. And so glorify yourself in the teaching of your word, we pray. Amen. Well, Grace loved to sing. It was in her freshman year that she was selected for the lead role in the high school musical. With long waves of auburn hair and dark brown eyes, a voice of an angel, a sweet spirit that just radiated the gentle and soft nature that her parents had always taken such great 
pride in. Uh, she captivated the hearts of everybody that knew her and, and, and everybody that heard her sing. She made friends easily. She conversed with people of all ages. She maintained a 3.4 grade point average. Grace met Jim in her sophomore year of high school. He was a senior, but only, three and a, half, only um, a year and three months older. Uh, the first time she saw Jim, he raced down the sideline. Football was tucked tightly under his left arm as he pushed for 54 yards and their all-time high school record in rushing that day. It was an unstoppable season, and the school planned to go to state and hoped to take the title. But it was on that day that after the game that they met in the parking lot for the first time. When, when Grace looked up and uh, for the first time when, when Grace looked up and she caught Jim staring as she and her friends walked by, uh, Jim, Jim was captivated. He, uh, he saw her friendly smile and, and all the, their friends witnessed the beginning of a, a very sweet love story. As they watched Jim finally pick up his jaw up off the ground and he approached Grace and he introduced himself. That evening there were 13 of them, they all went to the out for ice cream, but, but Grace and Jim wouldn't have known that anybody else was even there. They were fixated on each other, and they talked until the shop put up the chairs and turned off the lights. And so Jim walked Grace back home, five, five houses down, and he had her home three minutes before curfew. They instantly became best of friends and the talk of the town. Grace finished high school and afterwards worked for her father's hardware store while Jim finished at the State University on a full-ride scholarship. Uh, however, his father died about three months before Jim finished his business degree. And so he finished school, he came home, and, and he ran his father's business where he flourished in the community, and he made a moderate, moderate income, but it was well enough to support their dreams of a wonderful, a wonderful family, his future with Grace. And that summer they married. And they looked forward to happily ever after with a medium-sized house, three future kids, and a dog named Buster. But two years later, the economy dropped out. Jim worked hard, but nothing could save the business. And so he worked here, he worked there, while Grace waited for the arrival of their first child. Sammy was born premature. Uh, almost didn't make it. But, but Sammy pulled through. And though it seemed like he was always sick with something, he was in and out of the emergency room with one illness after another. Ian was born two years later. He was lame from birth. His, his arms would be grow strong, but he would never walk. And when Ian was five years old, they sold their house to pay for the doctor's bills. They moved into a small apartment that was paid for by Jim's two jobs. Five years later, though, there was an opportunity that arose, and it was the break that he was looking for. However, it meant moving to St. Louis, where they would be hundreds of miles away from Grace's mom, who was their last surviving parent and the only family that they had left. So Jim accepted the job. They found a small house. But Grace was tired. Grace didn't make friends like she used to, quite as easily as she did before. She became lonely, though the boys took their, to their new school where they kept their grades up, and the whole family hoped for the best as they started their new life and a somewhat brighter future. But here's the thing. Jim never actually played football in small-town America. His name was Elimelech. And mostly, most likely, he was a farmer who grew barley and wheat in a small town named Bethlehem amidst the tribe of Judah. Grace never went to high school. 
but her name was actually Naomi, and she most likely grew up in the same town where they met, they married, and together they lived the first few years of their marriage. They were kids that grew up in the town that were a lot like the kids that we grew up with, a lot like the kids with dreams and aspirations that fall in love and have their families and things get hard and, and they press through. These are real people, real people that, that served the Lord and, and, and waited for what he was going to do. As you turn your Bibles to the book of Ruth, the first few verses of this book presents us with the setting of our story, and I'd like us to consider that today. And we find a dilemma in these first few verses of, of this book. It was a dilemma for God's chosen people. Because we read that in the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. Now, the narrator of our story, he doesn't fill in any of the other details for us. Uh, the book of Ruth was, was more than likely, it was written on a scroll that um, uh, was probably written during the reign of King David or maybe perhaps during King Solomon, many years before the book of Judges was probably written. We know that the period of Judges was a time of, of catastrophic and, and chaotic life in Israel. Men did what was right in their own eyes. And the nation repeated this vicious cycle of, of, of sin and then judgment that would come with invading armies. And repentance would take place. And then there would be deliverance at the hands of some of Israel's local chieftains, uh, men and a, a woman named Deborah, uh, and several men called judges. But for the first audience of the book of Ruth, this opening line of our story, it's, it sets the narrative for everything else that's to come. And, and it's the narrator's way of telling God's people, I, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story, and it's a true one. It's, it's a story that happened a long time ago, before any of you were born. It happened before David was king. It even happened before Saul was the king and first king of Israel. This happened in the days when the judges ruled our land. And those difficult days were filled with sin and ungodliness. But in this story, that's, that's not what God's going to draw our attention to. The book of Ruth, I, I believe, is about finding the providence of God. Bruce Ware states it so well in his uh, theology. Um, he, he says, God continually oversees and directs all things pertaining to the created order in such a way that, number one, he preserves an existence and provides for the creation that he has brought into being. And number two, he governs and reigns supremely over the entirety of the created order in order to fulfill all his intended purposes in it and through it. Let me put that in, in other terms. You ever prayed for something and, 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 and watched God work? And you went, wow, <laughs> well, this is God. Clearly, this was something that God, or he answered my prayers, that he's working in his life, and, and, and none of this could have happened in any other way. The only explanation is that God made this happen. In fact, you might say, oh, it was a miracle. Now, technically, a miracle uh, in the Bible is when God bends the laws of nature, and, and he accomplishes something that um, you can't explain through science, and you can't explain through, he, he changed the laws of the universe, and he stepped in, and he made something happen that would be impossible otherwise. Uh, a miracle is when God parts the Red Sea. When a woman is told, you're going to bear a child next year, but she's already gone through menopause, and God reverses the, the order of things and, and makes her able to have a child at the age of 90 years old. When a virgin gives birth, when a man is told by Jesus, stretch out your hand, and, and for the first time in a long time, he, he has full strength in his hand. 
God, God bends the laws of nature. Providence, however, is when God works within the laws of nature that he has created, and, and he orchestrates the events of our lives and the events of humanity and the events of this world and this universe, and he orchestrates them in a way that, that he brings to about the events of our lives that we can only say God did that. He orchestrated this. Both miracles and providence we should look at and go, praise be to God, because he accomplished this thing. And so God's providence, he, he's preserving what he created, and he's governing over and reigning over supremely the entirety of the created order. Providence means that God is in charge. And he provides in a way that he accomplishes his purpose in his perfect timing. The book of Ruth, it, it's going to put God's providence on display for us in a story that's told in four acts, four chapters. And today what I'd like us to do is we're just going to uncover the setting. We're going to look at the first six verses, and that only, as we, um, as we watch each of those acts unfold over this next month um, through these four chapters. Today, as we look at the first few verses, we discover first that God's providence, his perfect provision, is found in the midst of the calamities of this life. Oftentimes, the book of Ruth is told with the assumption that, that sin is the foundation that this whole story starts with. That sin is already in play, and this family that we're first introduced to was part of that rebellion, and so they were suffering because God was punishing them. But I don't, I don't think that's what the text tells us. As we look at the book of Ruth, the text simply introduces us to a family a family that was living in hard times during a, a dark period of Israel and Judah's history. A family similar to Jim and Grace that, that we would look at and go, wow, you know, what happened? You know, all these things that, that happened in their lives. And, and I, I started with that story because I, I want to put Elimelech and, and Naomi in, in, in a terms that we relate with, with people that live around us. And we start with verse 1, and, and we see the first thing is this, there's this problem in the book of Ruth. There, there's a famine. Oftentimes, famine was a calamity that came about on the land of Israel. Uh, often it was because and a result of, of judgment. But sometimes famine came because it was part of the normal course of seasons and climate in, in a world that we live in where there are ramifications of sin as a whole. When, when it was God's judgment and the famine came specifically because God was judging Israel, what would take place is the prophet would say, this is what God is doing and why, and he would announce that the famine was a result of the people's sin. But when we come to the book of Ruth and this story, that, that's not what God's drawing our attention to. God is drawing our attention to a family that was caught in one of these calamities of life. And whether it was a result of God's judgment on Israel during that time, or it was just the natural course of, of some of the, the seasons and the, the, the climate that happens around us, they got caught up in the middle of it. And, and the narrator of Ruth and the Holy Spirit is drawing our attention to the land of Judah that is in the middle of this struggle. And, and here's the irony. In, in, in our story, the story begins in a town named Bethlehem. It's the same Bethlehem where you're aware of a, a baby that's going to be born a thousand years later. Same town. Bethlehem means, though, house of bread. That's, that's the Hebrew for it. And so the book of Ruth begins with no bread in the house of bread. 
In this little town that on a good year would flourish with barley and wheat, they were currently experiencing this great famine that lasted for years and years. Therefore, the first question that arises with this small book of Ruth is this. Is God going to provide for his people? Is God going to provide for his people? The book of Ruth recounts for us that the hand of God is in the lives of those that he calls his own. We, we believe, we believe that we serve a providential God and he promises that he does provide for his people. He does, he does it for his glory and he does it for the good of those who belong to him. But sometimes life doesn't look that way, does it? Sometimes life has its challenges, has its calamities that, that come into our lives. Sometimes we look around us and we see, we see death, we see suffering, we see sin, we see disappointment. And rather than experiencing bread in the house of bread, we, we ache and life seems bitter. Where's the providence of God during those times? This small book asks that question and answers that question. And the first answer that we're given is that we often discover that God's perfect provision is found in the midst of the calamities of life. But sometimes, sometimes the storms of life are compounded and the pain only gets worse, doesn't it? Ruth shows us that God's providence is also found in the pain of personal tragedy. I, I began today by telling a story of Grace and Jim. And again, though, though Grace and Jim are not real, their story may be much like Naomi and Elimelech's. Because we know very, we know very little about Elimelech himself, but, but we're, we're told his name. And significantly, his name means, my God is king. And so it's significant because during this chaotic and rebellious time that was the period of the judges, here we have a man whose parents recognized who the true king of Israel was. It was Yahweh. It was God himself. And, and they put an exclamation point on their theology. They put an exclamation point on what they believed about God by naming their son, my God is king. Likewise, his wife's name was my pleasant one. Wouldn't you like that? That's right. Her name means my pleasant one, Naomi. But like Grace and Jim, Naomi and Elimelech encountered the calamities of this life. In, in, in their case, it came in the form of famine in the land. Uh, we're not sure exactly how long that famine lasted, but if the names of their sons are any indication, uh, it would appear that this famine probably persisted for several years. Uh, Malone, their firstborn, uh, his, his name means weakling. How would you like that for a name growing up? You know, all the boys are picking, picking football teams, you know, and, and they pick, you know, Bob and Jim and George, and uh, we'll, we'll take Weakling. You know, you can be on our team. Uh, and then Kilion, his brother, means sickly. Uh, it, it was a time of famine, and a man named My God is King and his wife, My Pleasant One, had two boys that it, it seems, they, they seem to suffer. Oftentimes in ancient days, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't name your children until they were at least a, f a few months old because you just weren't sure if they were going to live or not. And by naming the naming of these boys, they were evidently, uh, were told, devoid of strength and, and health. 
Sometimes the calamities of this life are compounded by pain, and they're compounded by personal tragedy. I know many of you have experienced that in different ways. And so my God is king, did what any loving father would do for his family. He sought bread. He sought to find nourishment for his pleasant one and for his two sick children that had somehow survived the famine of that day. Now let me ask you this. If you had no work and, and everything was coming up fruitless, if you had no work, no money to pay the bills, the grocery store was empty just like your cornfields were barren, but you heard that there were jobs available and that there was bread that was plentiful down in Galesburg, Illinois, what would you do? You'd take your family, wouldn't you? you take your family there until the time came to return home. And, and Elimelech and Naomi endured the famine in Bethlehem, but believe it or not, just about 50 miles to the east, 50 miles, there was food in the country of Moab. Now, I, I've read a lot of, of, of uh, teaching on this passage, and I've been through Sunday school classes. I, I probably said this myself at one point, but there's a lot of us that have criticized Elimelech. Uh, in fact, Abby and I were uh, in the car the other day, and um, we were listening to a musical uh, about the, the book of Ruth. And uh, it, was a, it sounded like some great music and a great production, but the very first song was all about Elimelech and how he abandoned God's people. And it was this whole song about Elimelech's failures and all the people crying out to him, why are you going? Why are you leaving us? And um, great musical, but, but I, think they, I, I, I think we're missing the point of what God's presenting here in Luke. Uh, and, and I say that having probably taught the same at some point. You see, a lot of us have criticized Elimelech for taking his family to a foreign land, but I, but I don't think that's what's being emphasized here. It, granted, the people of Moab, um, they, they had an on-again, off-again relationship with Israelites. Um, the Moabites were distant cousins. Uh, they came out of an incestuous relationship between Abraham's nephew Lot and one of his daughters. And so that's the beginning of their history. Uh, they worshipped a god named Shamash, uh, he was a false god that they sacrificed to, and they would sacrifice their children. It was abortion in a horrible, horrible way. They would sacrifice their children to the fire. And, and so that was with the Moabites. And so granted, that's where he's moving to, where he's finding bread for his family. We're specifically told that he sojourned there. That means a, a temporary move. But for 18 years, during the time of Judges, Moab was the enemy of Israel, and, and they had invaded the lands of, of Judah and the lands of Israel. But by the time of our story and when it takes place, it seems that Moab and Judah were, were allies or had at least become friendly neighbors. In the days of Abraham and Isaac, uh, we, we see this exact same phrase, that there was a famine in the land. And what we're told is that they took their families out of the promised land and they went to where they would find bread. Abraham and Isaac did. In fact, Jacob was told to do that when he went to Egypt. A hundred years after Elimelech, uh, we're going to meet a guy named David. David is actually, I think, his second great-grandson. And um, David's going to do the same thing. He's going to take his family when he's running away from King Saul, and he's going to go to the king of Moab, same place, and he's going to find shelter for his family while he's running a a away from the sword of King Saul. And so I believe Elimelech, what he's doing here was what was best for his family. Because of the rapid decrease in elevation from Israel, the, the plateau that would sometimes trap in the moisture on the other side of the Jordan River, uh, the land of Moab would oftentimes, it would receive these large amounts of moisture when the land of Israel would suffer drought and famine just 50 miles away. 
And indeed, the word that's used here in our text that for the country of Moab, uh, it, it's, it's not the word that means land. It's not the word that means the nation of Moab. But literally, the word is the, the fields of Moab. Do, do you hear it? Uh, there, there's drought. There's famine in Bethlehem. But just over there, just across the river in those fields of Moab, there's food. There's, there's employment. There's food for my children. And so we ask, and the book of Ruth, I think, is asking, where is God? Where is God, the king, when a man whose name is my God is king has to flee to a foreign land of idol worshipers to find food for his family? Sometimes, and I want you to understand this, sometimes tragedy is the canvas upon which God shows his providence at work. Sometimes tragedy is the canvas upon which our God shows and paints his providence at work. However, as we continue on through the story, we find that this personal tragedy grows and it gets worse. In verse 3, we're told, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And, And so the story that we think at the beginning is about a man named Elimelech, it turns out isn't about Elimelech really at all, but... But now that we get to verse 3, the setting has been laid down, and and we find that Naomi is actually the main character of our story, this poor widow woman. And so now we have two questions that the book of Ruth is going to need to answer. The first question is what again? Is is God going to provide for his people, Israel? But the second question is will God provide for this bereaved widow woman named Naomi? The story continues on. It says her two sons took Moabite wives. In Deuteronomy, there was a prohibition against uh, Moabites being brought into the nation of Israel, uh, becoming part of the assembly. Uh, There's a lot of questions that commentators ask about what that means. Does it mean you can't marry a Moabite? Some would take that route. Um, At the least, it was allowed to marry a Moabite if they were converted to belief in Yahweh, which is is still the case for us. Um, But either way, whether they, they married these women and should not have, and it was against God's law, or these women were women that came to faith, either way, back home, both of these women would be considered and seen as, as foreigners. They, they wouldn't be welcome. Furthermore, they remained in the land for about another 10 years. And so what started as a temporary sojourn, a, a temporary move to a place where there was bread, and, and it, it became a, something more permanent. But then we're told, these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. In verse 5, both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Calamity turned into personal tragedy, and for Naomi, the, the personal tragedies of life seemed to be continually piling on top of one another, And so now she is the foreign woman living in a foreign land, and she's desperate. In those days, Naomi had no way of providing for herself unless she went to illicit means. She's living in a foreign land. She has no husband and no sons to provide for her. And so how is God going to provide for this poor widow? She's desperate. She's helpless. 
Some of you, I believe, are in the midst of some tragedies. Probably looking at some of the tragedies and some of the circumstances of life, and you're going, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I don't know what's next. I don't know how God is going to work through this pain. And, and your question, it, it, it may not be the question of an, of an angry rebel. I'm not saying that. It's not the, the question of an angry, angry rebel that's challenging God to his face, but your question may just reflect the silence that comes in the midst of, of so much pain. And, and there's that question that lingers is, how is God going to provide? And that was the question for Naomi. How is God going to provide for her needs? And I think the, gospel, the, the, the book of Ruth wants us to ask that question. How is God going to take care of her? And how is God going to take care of the nation of Israel? The book of Ruth is to answer that question for us, and it shows that God's providence is found not only in the midst of calamity, not only in the midst of the pain of personal tragedy, but God's providence is also found as the Lord visits and provides for his people. Look at verse 6 with me, and we'll end here. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord Yahweh had visited his people and given them food. Now, now this verse right here, it, it, you're, you're intended to slow down and look at verse 6. The, the author of Ruth wants you to take the time to say, wait, okay, we got the whole background here, but slow down a little bit and catch what's happening in verse 6. This verse is all about God's compassion on his people when they were in need. The idea of visiting, it shows that he loved them, and it shows his love towards his people, and, 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 and that he was aware of their calamity, he was aware of their tragedy, their, their, their suffering didn't go unnoticed. Verse 6 is telling us and screaming out to us, he does see and he does hear. I, I mentioned in, that the book of Ruth addresses two problems. Uh, the first problem was that there was no bread in the house of bread, and so here at the end of our introduction to the main story, God already answers that need. We don't have to wait through the whole book of Ruth to find the first answer to the first problem. God provides for his people Israel. In fact, the, the language of this verse slows down a lot. There's the, verse 6 is a tongue twister in the Hebrew language. You know, Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. Sally sells seashells down by the seashore. You can't say that too fast without just slowing down sometimes and going, that, that's verse 6 here. The, the Hebrew here is latet um, lachem lachem. God visited them in order to give them bread. And Ruth wants you to know that. They want, he wants, the narrator wants you to see that. The Holy Spirit wants you to see that God did provide for his people and he does care and he did listen. And so problem one solved. But now the rest of Ruth is going to answer that second question for us. We've seen that God cares about God's chosen nation, and he's provided for them as we expect that he would, because he made promises to Abraham, he made promises to the Israelites, and so we know that God is going to provide for them. But what about Naomi? Will God provide for this poor widow who's living as a foreigner in Moab? Does God still care about her? Will God provide for her? I, I think you know the answer. 
The, the joy is going to be, as we, as we journey through the book of Ruth, the joy is going to be to discover how he chooses to provide for Naomi. And, and we're going to witness over this next four weeks in these four, these four um, scenes, these four acts, how the Lord provides for Naomi and how the providence of God is found oftentimes through the least expected circumstances. And my friend, I, I want you to know, as we, as, just as we look at this introduction here today, it's important that we recognize that, that our God knows the calamities of this world. He, he sees the events of your life. He sees the events that are happening around you in your, in your culture, in your nation, in the world, and in the wars and rumors of wars that are going on. He, he witnesses the disasters. He witnesses the chaos. And his providence is in the midst of all of that. He's never lost control. And he hasn't lost control of your life. He knows your personal tragedies. And he cares. He loves you. He's compassionate. And he will visit you and provide for the needs that you face. Christian, he's going to do so for his glory. And he's going to do so for the good for your good and he will do it in his perfect timing in a way that is intended to draw you closer to him and in a way that will cause you to depend further on him as you witness what he accomplishes and so we're called to trust his providence no matter how messy life gets no matter how much the pain of this life hurts he has a plan that is better than our plans he has a plan that is better than all of our greatest suffering. And his providential care is more beautiful than any of the efforts that we will ever make. And so let us put our faith in him, and may it not waver. Father, we, we thank you for this beautiful way that you introduced this story, that your spirit inspired the, the narrator to write this account of this poor widow. We... Um, we feel her pain as we watch it unfold and as we just get a glimpse of the suffering she went through, the loss. And we understand how devastating it was for, for her, for her family. And we, we can relate to some of that in our own lives as we experience our own personal tragedies and as we watch the calamities of this world and the nations around us. But Father, we know and we trust and we have seen through our lifetimes that you are a God whose providence oversees the events of, of this world that we live in. And we trust that you're in control. We trust that you see your people. We trust that you see us individually and you care. And so we come to you this day and we put our trust in you in these moments. Father, I pray for my friends here that might be going through some of these tragedies and these calamities and some of the suffering of this life. Might they ever keep their focus on you, the one who visits his people. We thank you for your, our Lord Jesus Christ who made provision for our sins, who died on the cross to make payment for what we could not pay. We thank you for the salvation that comes through him, through faith. And Father, I pray that as we continue to, to, to journey through this book of, of Ruth, I, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you'd help us to see the ways that you provide and the ways that your providence is at work. And might we ever trust in you. Amen.